Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. Gaudiamus hodie. No, no response. That's the kids saying that this morning. It means, let us rejoice today. Since it's in Latin, I decided to do the whole Bible study in Latin today. So uh, it's recorded, so you can go back. If you missed some of the Latin, you can go home and check it just to make sure we're doing all right. Thanks for coming back. We had a week off last week because I was in Minnesota, and so uh, we've lost all sense of progress, but we're going to try to pick things back up. We uh, sort of have been through the first two chapters of the book of Acts. I say sort of because I kind of gave short shrift to the ending of Acts 2, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, As we're moving on today, we're going to be looking at chapters 3 and hopefully chapter 4. Like I said, we had to to pick up the pace at some point in time because otherwise this won't be the medium-length class that everybody wanted. But as we're doing it, and as you're covering Acts in kind of a, a speedier way, you can pick up on different things. If you go really slow, there are things that you're going to see because you're going really slow. And sometimes if you're just breezing through a chapter at a time, there are things that you would miss when you are going slow because you are too busy looking at each individual leaf on the tree that you missed the fact of, hey, look at how the trees are laid out. They're in a nice row like so, and and this is kind of cool. Well, as we're going through the first few chapters of Acts, it's easy to kind of discern, again, that Luke is a very gifted man, that as he set out to write a narrative, an account of Jesus's life in his gospel, he said he didn't do it just in some kind of haphazard way, but he said it in order, in an order, in something that made sense to him. And now that order doesn't necessarily have to be a chronological order, but it's an order that things fit into place just so. And he didn't just kind of, okay, here's a bunch of stories I know about Jesus and go and puts them all down. Well, that same artistry that began in his gospel is obviously still there when he's writing the uh, Acts of the Apostles. And so we can kind of discern this. And so as you move quickly through the first few chapters, there's kind of a narrative sequence Um, And I was standing at the back and I realized that it's a little bit hard to read the writing uh, on the board, so I'll go over it. The sequence of, of events that he kind of goes through again and again is that first he will give an account, kind of a bird's eye view, big picture of some kind of miraculous event. In chapter one, the big event is the ascension. In chapter two, the big event is the, the spirit's coming and the, the sound, that, that rushing of the wind, the flames, uh, as of, as of 
tongues of fire and then the languages that the disciples spoke. There's some kind of bird's eye view of this miraculous event. When we move on to chapter three, the event is going to be how Peter heals a crippled man. So that's always kind of the first thing in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. And it, it, it's followed up by the fact that people are amazed. And amazement here is not faith. It's what in the world is going on? What is this that's happening? It happens first with the disciples as they see Jesus ascend. They just kind of sit there dumbfounded and the angels have to come and talk to them and tell them about what was happening and the significance and that, you know, they must go on. And in uh, Acts chapter two, Peter gives that speech, that first sermon on Pentecost that explains to them, it's not that these guys are drunk. This is the sign of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the Old Testament said would happen in the end days, in the messianic age. Jesus is the Messiah. He has come, and now you have seen the fulfillment of this prophecy here in your midst. And in the third chapter, as we're going to get into uh, the healing that Peter does, Peter makes the point guys, this is not about me healing, this is Jesus continuing his ministry and his mission through us, but that same Jesus is at work. So in all three, when a speech is given that interprets the events, the, the speech is not just an interpretation of this is what's going on, but it always points to Christ, points to Jesus, and, and glorifies him and says, this is all about Jesus. Again, the book of Acts, uh, as Luke begins it, he talked in his first book all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And so now he's continuing what Jesus is still doing and still teaching. So that's the second part of the sequence of the story, a speech that in the end glorifies Christ and brings uh, more connection to the events and through God's plan and the Old Testament. And, and it's all about him. Finally, it ends with consequences of the speech. So people now have heard what has been spoken and how this points to Jesus. And the consequence is that the Spirit fills the church and fills the church in, in different ways. In the first chapter, the way that, that the Spirit fills the church is that uh, Peter and the rest of the disciples get together and realize that they need to fill in that spot that, that Judas uh, has now abandoned because of his death. Uh, and so they do that. In the second chapter, we're going to get to what happens. And in the third chapter, uh, we hear again about how people respond in faith. But now a new wrinkle, we're kind of turning a, a corner uh, in the narrative of Acts of the Apostles. We're going to see that the new consequence is not just a spirit-filled church, but um, although it doesn't say it right away, we'll find out very quickly, and it doesn't take too much to figure this out, is a satanic opposition. That Satan sees what is happening here, and that the church is growing, that the word of God is being spread, and Satan is going to, through various people, try to thwart and stop the progress of the gospel. 
Um, but just as happened when Satan came and tried to oppose Jesus, uh, it, its progress cannot be impeded. And so there will be growth in spite of what Satan does because the Holy Spirit is at work through the word. So that sequence, it's happening there in chapters one and two and three and four. And again, it, it's not that Luke made all of this up and like, look how it fits this neat little outline. You, you can tell that he made it up. That's a gifted storyteller. Again, if you're going to retell history, you, you're faced with all of this data. And how do you get that to people? How do you narrate it? How do you put it together for people? And if you've ever read um, old history books, you know that some are really boring and some just capture you. And it's the same history. It's not as though one has made stuff up. It's just one person is a lot better at putting that together in a way that's coherent and understandable and engaging and carries through. Uh, in movies today, we're kind of spoiled because uh, when they record a movie, generally there are a lot of different camera angles that are involved. There's a lot of different viewpoints that the movie might be taken uh, uh, the consideration of. And so it, it kind of engages you because you're always kind of getting a new vantage point of what's going on. Uh, when you're writing a story, you don't necessarily have all of those skills at your um, ready but you can still do things as a storyteller to, to make it engaging and captivating. And this is one of the ways that he's doing that. So you can kind of see this big picture thing happening. All right. So that's a big picture. Now we're going to zoom back in. And I said that we, even though we're in Acts 3, I gave short shrift to chapter 2. Um, I ended, I think, last time on the fact that after Pentecost, it, the word of the Lord grew, that there were 3,000 um, added to the number of believers on that day because of the Holy Spirit's work through Peter. Um, and that's kind of how I ended it. But if you're following along in, in your Bible, you know that there's a section just after that. Um, and it's pretty famous section. And that's one reason why I kind of avoid it, uh, because it would be easy to get sucked in here and spend an entire class just on this paragraph. But I don't want to do that, but I do want to just briefly hit it. So this is Acts 2, 42 through 47. So this is after the day of Pentecost. This is after uh, Peter's sermon, uh, so where Christ is glorified. This fits into this part of the sequence of the story, the consequences of that speech, the Spirit-filled church. 41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. 
And the Lord added to their number, uh, added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So the event of Pentecost is kind of summarized at 41, that that day, 3,000 people repented, were baptized, and were added to the number. 42 through 47 is kind of a, an appendix that is going to be a big picture for just in general, what happened after Pentecost. So like they did this, and then what? And Luke isn't going to cover every single detail, but here's the kind of stuff that was going on in the church. And we learn a lot about this early community of, of believers in Jesus. We learn that they were a learning community, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching that they studied not only that Old Testament word, but also heard the stories of Jesus. The apostles were the eyewitnesses of his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So now they have the opportunity to learn all of those things. Luke may not tell us about all of those stories because he's already written a book about it. It's all there in the gospel. You can hear what the eyewitness testimony of these apostles was was like. It was about the, the life of Jesus. So they were a, a learning community. It says that they were also devoted to um, fellowship. And to uh, fellowship is a, a popular, was, well, it was a popular word back in like the 80s. The Greek word here, koinonia. Uh, you might have had groups like Bible study groups and small groups called koinonia. That's this word fellowship. It means sharing or having uh, participation in something together. And so they were sharing their lives together. And, and that shows the, the love that they had. And we see that specifically in the fact that they're selling some of their own property, their own stuff, so that nobody would be in need so that everybody would be taken care of in that community of faith. They're sharing with one another, and that fellowship is, is not just time spent together, but it's also the things that they shared together. They shared their lives together. I need a Ferrari if anybody wants to share. Yeah. I'll, I'll sell mine later. Someone has to give me one first. Uh, so they were a learning community, they were a loving community, they were also a worshiping community devoted to breaking of bread and to prayer. Um, the, the breaking of bread, there's always a question of, does this just mean that they had their meals together or is this uh, pointing to the breaking of bread as in when Jesus broke bread? That is that they're celebrating the Lord's Supper together with one another? And uh, the best answer to that is probably yes, uh, that, that all of these things are happening. It's not just that they have worship together, but that they spend other parts of their day together. And so in formal ways and in informal ways, they they are worshiping because when they come together, they, they are saying those prayers. They are remembering what God has done in their lives. When they go to the temple, they're doing the same thing. They are praying and worshiping together as, as a body. And we kind of see some of how this happens in, in our life together as well. Uh, we have Sunday morning formal worship or Saturday evening formal worship, but there are other ways that, that you might have devotions in your home, that you might have small groups and Bible studies, that you have more informal ways of worshiping God. And this is what they were doing as well. But the last thing is that they were also evangelizing. 
that they weren't just an inward-focused community. Uh, and though it doesn't specifically say this, it's in the fact that God added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, the only way so far that God has added to the number is by the Word of God getting to other people. And the Word of God didn't just drop down from the sky. The Word of God came to people through people. And so they were sharing their lives together. They were sharing times of worship together. They were sharing the wisdom of the apostles together. But most importantly, they were sharing outside of their community as well. And part of that, you know, just it, it was natural. You know, as they were having people into their homes, people might say, hey, what's going on here? Is there a party? Can I, can I come? Uh, and people could join in that. As they're going to the temple together, the temple is a very public place. And so, well, what, what are these guys doing? They, they sound like they're, they're, their prayers are a little bit different. They're doing a different kind of thing. Well, what is that thing? And people might inquire and they could tell them. So, these are kind of in acts, um, outward characteristics of that Christian community. And uh, as we think about our own communities of faith, hopefully those would all be parts of it as well, that we are a learning community, that we are a loving community, that we are a worshiping community, that we are an evangelizing community. And, and God is the one who's behind all of this. They didn't just do this all naturally on their own. Remember uh, when Jesus ascended, the, the, the disciples, the apostles, they weren't going anyplace. They were just like, oh, huh, well, that was cool. What's next? What do we do now? And takes that nudge and, and wait here. You still don't understand it, but wait for the Spirit to come and then things will start to make more sense and the Spirit will bring forth the words that need to happen. So that's kind of the, the, the summary, not only the consequences of the first speech, Acts 42 through 47, but it also gives us a little bit of a preview. Because when we get into Acts 3, it talked about how the apostles were doing many wonders and signs. We're going to hear about one of the signs or wonders of the apostles. And then a little bit after that in uh, this section, this little, uh, what I'm calling the appendix, it talks about the selling of their goods, we're going to hear in chapter 4 a little bit about something that happens uh, when they, well, it's going to be reinforced in 4, but I guess especially in chapter 5, about how that selling of goods wasn't completely a good thing, but Satan, it was a good thing, but Satan used it to kind of wreak havoc in the community. So Luke is setting us up giving us little previews of what's to come. Again, this is a sign of a great storyteller. Um, all that information might be too much now, but you're like, oh yeah, he did say that. That was kind of a summary, and now he's going to zoom in on that. Okay, I'm going to say that that's the wrap, finally, of chapter two. It was a false ending last time. Chapter three, the miracle that happens at the temple. The bird's eye view miraculous event is that as was stated in that little appendix. What did the disciples do after Pentecost? What did the apostles do? They did all of those things, which also included going to the temple. They 
were still Jews in their eyes, right? What did Jews do? They went to the temple to worship. And they didn't stop doing that. Their worship changed. It changed because of the revelation of Jesus, but they still went to the temple to offer their prayers and the daily uh, prayer services. They were there because that's what they knew. That's how they worshiped God. That's how they praised him. And so they keep doing this. So chapter three tells us that Peter and John one day are going to the temple. And as happens in the temple, because there's a lot of people going there, um, there were beggars, people who were in need of mercy, in need of help, because this was sort of the give and take of religious life among the Jews, that it was good for you as a Jew to do good for someone, to give them alms, to help them out. Uh, that was part of your spiritual life and part of what brings the community together. Well, you need people to help, there are also, there are also people who were in need. And so if you have people in need and people that want to give help, you try to bring those people together. And the temple being a big place of traffic and where people are coming, people who are devout, people who are the kind of people who want to help out, they would bring people there, people that were in need, people who were sick, people who were poor. Uh, this happens in the Gospels, in John's Gospel in chapter 5. There's a story about a man at a pool, uh, and his, his, his friends bring him to the pool because it, it was thought that when, when the Spirit, uh, like, God moved the waters, that the first person to touch those waters after they were moved would be healed. And Jesus talks to this paralyzed man who obviously isn't able to be first in line, but he's there because he knows that, that God heals and he wants that healing in his life and Jesus heals him. Now, in, in, this is in John's gospel. It leads to a conflict because Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. Yeah, and again, with the Pharisees, that was a big no-no. You're not supposed to do any work. And telling that man to pick up his mat and go was work, so that was a no-no. That's just an example of how people who were sick or in need were brought to the temple. Uh, here, we encounter a crippled man, a man who is born lame, lame from birth. We don't find out until uh, kind of the end of the story that he's he was born this way, that for 40 years he's been crippled and lame. And so the way he lived his life seems to have been that his friends or family would bring him to the temple. And that was how he made his livelihood uh, off of the alms or the mercy that was given to him by the people that were going to worship at the temple. So as Peter and John are going to the temple, they happen to run into this crippled man being brought to the temple to receive these alms. And what happens next? The disciples say, we'd like to help you. But Peter says, I don't have any silver or gold. But what I do have, I'm going to give to you. What did Peter have to give this crippled man? Healing power. Okay, healing power, Jesus. So specifically, we're here at verse 6, right? Chapter 3, verse 6. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So, miraculous events ends in amazement and wonder. People are like, what in the world is this? What's going on? One of the things that's, again, very vivid to me in the way that Luke tells the story, this is all done in the name of Jesus. It's done instantaneously, right? Again, the miracle is it works on multiple levels. If you've ever had uh, surgery on an, a bum knee or hip or you know some some part of your body that you need to walk around, you know that after that surgery, you didn't just get up and jump around and you know you you were pretty much impeded and you had to go through lots of physical therapy to regain. The, the strength in your leg, because for a while you have to not be moving it and so, so that it would heal properly. But this, this isn't like that. This man whose legs did not work that way, he would not have physically had the muscles. He would not have had the neurons in his brain that told his muscles what to do, because for 40 years he didn't need that. They, they wouldn't have ever been created. And now all of a sudden, He's not stumbling around like a, a drunk guy who's never used legs before. He's walking, he's walking, he's walking and leaping and jumping. Luke like repeats these verbs over and over again as if to dramatize the moment. You can see that guy like he's 40 years old and, and basically a grown man, but he's like a giddy little schoolgirl, right? Just jumping, woohoo, yeah, wah, you know, and for us as Germans and Lutherans, this is really uncomfortable. What in the world? Just settle down, buddy. Okay, so for 40 years you couldn't walk and now you can. A, a simple thank you would be all you need to do, but that's not what this guy's doing. He's leaping and praising God and all of the people around. Remember, this is the temple. There's a lot of traffic. This is attracting attention. What's going on? What, what is this? Hey, I recognize that man. For 40 plus years, he's been crippled. He's been here. People have been bringing him to the temple. This is no longer on Pentecost when uh, the temple or the city and the temple were thronged with visitors from outside. This just seems to be a typical, regular, normal day. People you know, you run into the same people, you've seen them again and again because you're always there at a certain time, they're always there at a certain time. People recognize this guy. But is that that guy? Because now he's leaping and jumping and praising God. Something must have happened. They're amazed, but they don't know what's going on. So they, they need to be filled in. If it just ends here, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful for this man that, that he has been healed and he's praising God, but they, there needs to be more. We'll get to the more in a second. Again, to emphasize the point that, that this is Jesus who is acting. Uh, Peter does not draw any special attention to himself. 
it, it, it is not something that, that he is doing. He is giving from what he has, from what he has received. And what he has is, is Jesus's name and Jesus's authority. And so that's what he gives to this man. And that gift of healing is something that we've seen Jesus do throughout his life. Uh, and in the Gospels, you can come across miracles just like this, uh, of people who couldn't walk, who were lame, and Jesus made them able to walk. So again, that continuity in Jesus's ministry. Uh, again, I think I, I mentioned this before, but when John was in prison and asked his, his disciples to go to Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or is there another that we should be expecting? Uh, Jesus told those disciples to report what it is that they saw. And that's there on your handout. It's Acts, uh, Luke 7, 22. Uh, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. I also have before that a, a passage, Luke 4, 18 through 19. That passage, Jesus is reading, quoting Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And again, this is all part of that prophecy of what what would happen in the messianic age? What would happen when God comes and brings salvation to his people? It's things like this. It's things like the lame being able to walk again. Well, Jesus did that in his own ministry, but now the apostles, Peter, is showing that that same Jesus is at work through the apostles. The apostles, as we're going to see, are not going to use this as a, you must follow us. We are the successors of Jesus. We are the ones who do powerful signs and wonders. They use this as a chance to, again, bring people to Jesus, to show that this man, Jesus, who was crucified is the Christ, the Messiah. And this means something for them here and now. And, and there's going to be a change that's required of them. Did you have a question or are you? Okay, just checking. All right, so that's the miracle, the, the amazing event. We're going to have Peter's speech. Uh, somebody want to read the speech? Um, so while he clung, this is that, that lame guy, we're at uh, 311. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Who's going to be my Peter? Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witness. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is, through Jesus, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Let's stop there. So that's the, that's the beginning of Peter's speech. How many times here does Peter mention himself? 
How many times does he say, I? He talks about, why do you uh, wonder at this or why do you stare at us? But immediately, he, he deflects the attention. It's not about this man. It's not about us. It's now a conversation about what you did and what God has done. So in the beginning of his speech, there's this contrast between you, all of the people here, and what God has done. And the you here, they don't come out very well. <laughs> they, they, they are the ones um, you delivered over this Jesus. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Luke basically says, it makes sense that you guys wanted Barabbas, a murderer, instead of Jesus, because like company goes together. You're murderers. You wanted the killer Barabbas because you are all killers, and you killed Jesus. Put to death the author of life. You can imagine you can hear a pin drop, right? Either that or they're starting to jeer and, you know, throw stones at him. But as he has a chance to continue, it seems to me that it's, it's the former, not the latter. That is that they're like, whoa, what, what are you saying? And that's what you have done. But despite the fact that you have done this, God has glorified his servant, Jesus. That word servant, again, to us, it might kind of Okay, his servant. Yeah, I get it. But again, read through the latter part of Isaiah. And there are chapter after chapter, they're called the servant songs or, or the, the, the parts about the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And again, it's, it's connected with the prophecies of Jesus. Israel was supposed to be the servant of the Lord. The nation was supposed to be his people, but they were disobedient. They did not do the things that God called his people to do. But Jesus becomes like Israel, the nation, in one person. He becomes that representative of humanity who is perfectly obedient to his father's will. He serves his father's will. He is that servant. And so when he mentions this, again, this is happening in the temple. These are Jews. These are people who know the Old Testament, who have those expectations. And so he's plugging into that. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. That's what he said in his first speech on Pentecost. You're waiting for the Messiah? Jesus is that Messiah. Here he's adding to that. Jesus is the servant. You're waiting for the servant of God as Isaiah talks about. Jesus is that servant. He, he goes on, he talks about how he is the holy and righteous one. Again, the holy one of God. None of us are holy. Because of sin, none of us are holy. None of us can stand in God's presence. But to call Jesus the Holy One, the Righteous One of God, that's, that says something about him. It says something about his identity, that he is distinct from you and me who are unrighteous. He also says that he is the author of life. That's amazing. That Jesus, the one who was put to death, killed, is the one 
who is the source of life. If you can figure out how that's possible, you, I think you get a straight trip to heaven. Because that, that does not make sense to anyone. It never has. God is God. God is eternal. God is immortal. But God died on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross. But on the third day, he rose again. He came to life. Logically, that does not work in our heads, but here he's, he's saying just that. You killed the author of life, the source of life. There's this tendency in more critical scholarship to think that who we believe Jesus is is not who the disciples knew Jesus as but rather over time, over centuries, over church political machinations, Jesus became who we worship. That is, Jesus was just a regular guy. He had some high hopes. Those didn't work out. But that, did, that doesn't make for a good story. So people wrote the Gospels. They made up these stories. And here we have an example of this is like the early church, right? It doesn't get much earlier than this. But their view of Jesus is deep, profound, complex. They're, they're not just saying Jesus is some guy. They're saying he was the servant of God, the, the fulfillment of those prophecies in Isaiah, that he is the holy and righteous one, that he is unlike you and me, that he is the author of life, that this Jesus who came, he lived and existed before life. Life was through him. And so what Peter's saying here, just it blows your mind when you think about everything he's saying. And did, did, did everybody ca catch up with him and figure all of this stuff out? Probably not. They're still going to be working on that. Like, tell me more. Like, what did you mean by this? And again, that's what that time of them learning together, their being devoted to the apostles' teaching gives them the chance to do that. So he's now given this account that glorifies Jesus but there was a lot of Jesus, God versus you. And so he is now going to talk about what does this mean for you and me? I mean, you put us in a really bad position, Peter, because uh, you made us out to be the murderers of the source of life. I, I, I don't think that's going to mean good things for us. So he continues, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for rest restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And he's going to go on. I'm going to pause there, though. So what's Peter's response? Okay, he's talked about what God has done, that he has now glorified Jesus. He's also said, it's basically all your fault. You're the ones that killed him. But now, what am I saying to you? What, what's, is Peter angry with them? 
acted in ignorance, mm -hmm. but now mm -hmm. understand. Yeah, yeah. You didn't understand what was going on before. I get that. The disciples could say, to be honest, we didn't understand what was going on either. But, but now we know. And now you can't say that you didn't know, that you were ignorant. Now this means something for you. And so he doesn't appropriate ill will or malice on their part. They, they might have been doing a good thing. If, if Jesus really was somebody blaspheming God and not who he really was, you know, maybe that was the appropriate response. But now that you know that Jesus was not blaspheming God, but was the true son of God, you must know God forgives. God forgives. Repent. Turn from your ignorance. Turn from your unbelief. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus because he forgives sins. The holy and righteous one is able to make you holy and righteous just as he is. So Peter says that when you repent, when you turn, when you trust in this God and what he has done in Jesus, that, that your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing he said, right? Your sins will be blotted out, uh, gone. He says there will be times of refreshing. Now, this is a kind of troubling uh, phrase. Uh, I looked at a few different commentaries, and some of them weren't exactly sure. Like, do uh, does Peter have in mind, like, that, that things will get better, like, you know, in the end, God will bring refreshment in the sense that he will free you from this world of sin? Um, or is it more immediate? Right now, your conscience is probably pretty heavy. But if you know that you are forgiven, there's refreshment there. Refreshment for your spirit to know that, oh, I, I thought I was in trouble here because the author of life, yeah, I killed him. But, but now I know God wipes that out. He's blotted it out. It's forgiven. He doesn't hold it against me. So a couple possible things happening there with this, this time of refreshment. But then he talks about how there's going to be a, a restoration, that this Jesus that, that God, uh, that God sent, uh, would return and, uh, that there would be this restoration. So, um, the, the gift that, that Peter offers here isn't just the here and now forgiveness of our sins that, that refreshes us, but it is also the promise of a restoration, of a putting things back in the order that they're supposed to go. Because he's just talked about how things aren't going the way that they were supposed to. Well, it's true. Everything was in God's control. Everything was as he foretold it. But the way that it went is not a way that I'm comfortable with, because if I'm one of the people listening, the way that God foretold it, I'm somebody who's acting against God. God sent his son Jesus, and I was one of the people that opposed him. And I don't like that version of things. I would rather like a restoration of the order so that, yes, things do continue to go as God plans them, but that I'm on God's side and working with him and not against him. And so that's here. 
And when Peter is going to go on, he's going to quote a few different Old Testament places. He's going to talk about Moses. He's going to talk about Samuel and the prophets. And then he is uh, uh, also going to mention Abraham. And uh, again, just to kind of make a few quick notes on that, he, 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 he makes sure to this Jewish audience that everything that he says is backed up by Scripture by the Old Testament, by what these people know and believe, again, to show that, yes, this is in order. This is exactly what God promised that he would do. And, uh, and, and they can trust that. They can know that. All of this would be really wonderful. I mean, so far, it seems like it's going to go boom, 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 right to the Spirit-filled church, and, and everything is going to be good. But Peter is telling this this. Uh, uh, a defense or account of Jesus in the temple. And in the temple are not only people, but a lot of officials of the temple, the, like the, the political part of the temple, the ones that make sure things go in order and everything is kind of happy so that the Romans don't say, you guys are creating quite a disturbance and we gave you a little bit of levity, but we're, we're going to take that away because if you can't follow law and order, enforcing it yourself, we're going to step in. Um, that's what happens in Holy Week, right? They're concerned about Jesus and the crowds. They're concerned about that because they don't want the Romans to step in and take away what little authority the Jewish officials truly have. So in chapter 4, the people who step in are, are called the council, um, sometimes called the Sanhedrin. These are uh, officials who are responsible for the running of the temple. Um, and so this is made, this is a, a body made up of kind of various different groups. Uh, it was a council of 71. The high priest was kind of the person who presided over that council, the, the quote unquote leader of the, the Sanhedrin of this council. But there are also representatives from the people who were not of one mind. There were especially two groups that we hear a lot about, the Pharisees and this other group, the Sadducees. They were different Jewish groups. They're, they're, they're all Jewish. They would all worship at the temple, but they had different interpretations of Scripture. Um, we might maybe draw the parallel of like different denominations of the church. They were all the church, but they had some disagreements on things. And so they, they did their own sort of things. Here, especially, it's the Sadducees that Luke draws our attention to, that the Sadducees were really upset with what was going on with uh, this healing and what Peter says. And um, they're kind of uh, we'll talk about their theology, but they were kind of the wealthy aristocrats. As far as the information that we know about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, I will say our sources are kind of difficult. We can learn about them through rabbinic material, the Mishnah. We can learn about it through the New Testament and through Josephus. Those are kind of our three sources. None of those sources are friendly towards the Sadducees. That is, they're never trying to explain who the Sadducees are. In what they say about the Sadducees, the Sadducees are always like the, the bad guys that are doing stuff that we don't like. 
And so there's a lot we don't know about them. But from what we can tell, they seem to be the wealthy aristocrats, people of great power, people who are close to um, the temple and Jerusalem, people who are closely connected to the high priest. The Pharisees seem to be more the common religious perspective, not necessarily the rich and the powerful, but, but people that represent the, the common kind of the democratization of the faith. You know, we can all be good Jews if we just do the right things. And the Pharisees taught all of those traditions and rules that Jesus attacked, but the, the, the Sadducees did not believe any of those things. Um, their belief was, was really, a, well, I said last time, we focused on the fact that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe it, it, that that was a part of God's story. They believed that what happens here and now is all that matters. So you just, you better live as good a life as you can. And, and that's all that's important. But it's particularly, it seems, because of their connection to the high priest, they are the power brokers, and then especially that they don't believe in the resurrection, that they're going to be the ones we hear more and more about. Because what Peter and John and the rest of the apostles are doing is causing a ruckus in the temple. This is causing a commotion and a disturbance. And the Sadducees working with the high priest, they don't want disturbances. They want nice, orderly worship, things to be calm and peaceful. But then we're going to find out that Peter is going to be talking again and again about this resurrection thing. And the Sadducees are like, quit talking about the resurrection. There is no resurrection. You're teaching contrary to God's word. So they're going to be the ones that, that run into trouble. Now, what are they going to do? We're going to be really brief here. They arrest John and Peter, put them in prison because it's almost the evening. They need to figure out what to do with them. Um, it's the next day. It's morning. They convene this council, this Sanhedrin, and Peter and John have a chance to kind of speak for themselves. By what authority? Who are you? Why are you doing this? In whose name? Which like is like a softball just lobbed to Peter. And he's like, okay, I can do something with that. He can go immediately to Jesus. That I am doing this because of Jesus. You remember him. Luke tells us that Annas and Caiaphas are there. Annas and Caiaphas were a part of Jesus's trial. They probably recognize Peter and John from that connection as well. They know these guys are no good. They know that they put Jesus to death and they're stumped. The Sanhedrin does not know what to do with Peter and John. Now, again, the critic would say, well, just produce Jesus's body and shut the apostles up. You keep talking about this Jesus risen from the dead. Here's his bloody body from the grave. That Jesus, is that who you're talking about? Because he's still dead. Here, see him? They can't touch that. So they kind of bypass that. But what about the healing that was done in Jesus' name? Surely they can do something with that, but they can't. For 40 years, everybody saw this man at the temple, this lame man, and they know that he couldn't walk. He was a beggar. And now everybody's seen him walking and jumping and praising God. And they can't deny that either. Well, okay, guys, could you just stop talking about Jesus, though? Peter and John are like, nope. 
not going to happen. We're eyewitnesses. He's caused, called us to call the world to account, to tell them about what he has done. So you can tell us to be quiet, but we're not going to do it. God is the authority. God is the highest authority, the one that we are called to submit to, and we're not going to listen to you. Well, pretty please, would you just be quiet about this, Jesus? No. What do we do? Go. Just go and be quiet. They, the Sanhedrin, the council, they can't do anything to them. They, they, they could keep them in jail, but what, that's, that's only going to cause more friction and conflict because they know it's not just Peter and John. 3,000, 5,000, the amount of people who have heard the word spoken about Jesus has grown and increased, and the people who believe in that word has too. So they just, they just let them go. And Peter and John go back to some of the Christians, and they pray. They, they pray. They are that spirit-filled church. And they pray not in fear, not in anger. God, get those people out of here because they're stopping your word from going out. They're making it harder and more difficult for us. No, they pray, Lord, sovereign God, give us boldness. Give us boldness to speak that word even more. You might be afraid because of their threats, but we know, God, you're the sovereign. You're the Lord of all, and we're going to follow you. We're going to follow you no matter what. So Satan has tried to sneak into the story to stop the church, but what power does Satan have against the word of God? Shut up, be quiet. No, no, they won't, they can't. And the word is going to continue to go. Chapters 3 and 4, I know we didn't finish 4. We're going we're gonna to get back to that sort of how I started with uh, the end of chapter 2 today. But um, there's a lot there. A lot there. Good things. There's stuff I know I skipped over. But like I said, that, that big picture view and what's going on. The church is growing because the word of God is getting out. The word is doing its thing, bringing people to faith, repentance, and uh, the people filled with the spirit continue to bring that word to more and more. And even though Satan is going to try to work opposition, it just doesn't work. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.